this podcast covers serious crimes and subject matter that may be distressing to some audience members. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, everyone. Welcome to True Crime on Our Minds. With me, as always, is my lovely sister and co-host, Debbie. Hey, how are you doing? Pretty good. I can't believe that we're actually in the same room recording, but not facing each other. So it's kind of weird. Yeah, this is a lot more complicated face to face than it is from a distance. Or in our case, face to back, I Uh, guess. uh, Butt to butt. (laughs) Maybe. Okay, so this week we are discussing the murder of Martin Durham and the unusual circumstances that led to the conviction of his killer. He went by Marty, so that is how we will refer to him in this episode. But before we start, Debbie, I have a fact or crap for you. All right, I'm ready. So the crime took place in Ensley Township, which is in Nuego County, Michigan. Aside from the crime we are going to discuss, I didn't really find much when I Googled. So this factor crap applies to the state of Michigan rather than a city or a town. And keeping with the Halloween theme from our last episode, Michigan is home to the largest population of vampire bats. Factor crap. Mm, I'll say crap. Crap it is. Vampire bats only live in Central and South America. However, Michigan is home to nine species of bats, including one that is rare, and their diet consists of insects, not blood. The most commonly seen is the little brown bat, which has small ears, large feet, and a wingspan of eight and a half to eleven and a half inches. A single little brown bat can eat six hundred to a thousand mosquitoes in an hour. Bats are the only flying mammal, and they live in colonies. During the summer, the small brown bat will reside in hot attics and under roof shingles and house sightings. During the winter, because of the lack of insects, the species will hibernate in caves, houses, hollow trees, mines, and any other location where they can find warmth. I've heard of them being in people's um, chimney flues um, and, you know, coming down their chimneys at them. Which would be a nice, dark, warm place. Yeah. And it was just so funny because the other night when we were at dad's house and we were talking about bats, I was like squirming in my chair because I wanted to spew out all these facts, but I didn't want to give the fact or crap away. (laughs) I told you we have bats that live in the woods behind us, but we've never found one in our home. Thank goodness. Thank goodness. Yeah. So I have a couple more facts about bats. Landowners in Michigan are encouraged to protect and embrace bats rather than kill them. One website gives instructions on how to construct a bat house to keep the mammals outside of human houses. Also, if you come across a bat outside that appears to be sick or injured, or if you find an unattended baby, especially if it is on the ground, leave it alone and keep children and pets away from it. In Michigan, it is illegal to rehabilitate a bat. In most cases, the bat will leave on its own. If it is in your home, you should call a professional to have it removed. Since bats are mammals, they can carry rabies. So it's just a good idea for you and the bat to avoid contact with each other. And that's what we have for this week's Fact or Crap. All right. Well, thank you for informing us about bats. Let's go ahead and jump in and tell our listeners about this week's Fact is Stranger Than Fiction case. All right. Marty and Glenna Durham met as teenagers. They dated for a short time, but they were young and the relationship didn't last. 
Marty went on to marry a woman by the name of Christina Keller. Together, they had three children. Glenna also married and had children. Both marriages ended in divorce, and after nearly 20 years, Marty and Glenna reunited and ultimately married in 2005. They settled down in Inslee Township, Michigan. A few years into their marriage, Marty began to have health issues resulting from a traumatic brain injury he'd received in a car accident in 1995. In 2010, Glenna became his dedicated caregiver and drove him to all of his doctor's appointments. She also assumed responsibility of the couple's finances. Marty wore a leg brace and could walk, but seemed to have more difficulties as he got older. (laughs) Don't we all? Even with his disabilities, he enjoyed hunting and the outdoors. Marty reportedly kept over 20 guns in a safe in the couple's home. In February and April of 2015, he had additional surgeries, including one for a hernia. On the morning of May 12, 2015, Connie Ream, a neighbor and friend of the Durham's, heard two gunshots. She thought that perhaps Marty was hunting, although it was still pretty early. The next day, May 13th, Room grew concerned after not hearing or seeing the Durhams, so she went over to check on them. After no response, Reem entered the home through an unlocked door. The fact that the door was unlocked was concerning as the Durhams had always had their doors locked and not even family members had keys to their home. Once inside, Reem noticed that the house was in a state of disarray and appeared to have been ransacked. A broken lamp, papers, and other items were strewn across the living room and bedroom floors. When she entered the couple's bedroom, she came across a bloody scene and found the couple unresponsive on the floor. Reem left the house and approached Sand Lake firefighters who were down the street attending to a garage fire. She explained what she'd seen and requested that they check on the Durhams. Sand Lake Fire Chief Ed Holtzlander and two firefighters entered the home and discovered Marty and Glenna's bloody bodies on the floor of the bedroom. Glenna was partially covered by a blanket, however, her head was still visible. Chief Holtzlander called 911 dispatch, reporting that the couple was deceased from what appeared to be self-inflicted gunshots. That was at around 4.30 p.m. The Sand Lake State Police were also dispatched to the residents at this time, responding to what they thought was a suicide. Although the firefighters saw three empty firearm cartridges and one full cartridge at the end of the bed, they didn't see a weapon. They decided to leave the residents to preserve what might be a crime scene, as well as for their own safety. Shortly after, two Sand Lake paramedics arrived and entered the home upon learning that there may be children inside. They searched all the rooms and closets and confirmed no one else was in the home. They were then advised to stay out of the home until police arrived. This information was relayed to state troopers who were en route to the scene. A trooper asked dispatch whether the first responders had confirmed the couple was deceased and was told that yes, the fire chief said the couple was dead on arrival. This took place at around 4.50 p.m. By 5.30 p.m., an hour after the firefighters first entered the home, State police had cleared the residence, secured it for a search warrant, and then requested the neighbor help get the couple's dog out of the home. In the living room, investigators found bullets, a bloodstained sofa, and a Ruger handgun. A bowl of spaghetti and garlic toast were on the kitchen table, and there were signs that the dog had been neglected for an extended period of time. While the house was being searched by investigators, neither Marty nor Glenna had um, moved or showed any sign of life. 
45-year-old Marty, clad only in his underwear, was confirmed to be deceased from five gunshot wounds, three of which were later determined to be at close range. Autopsy reports would state that he also had strands of hair gripped in his hand. Michigan State Police Sergeant Gary Wilson then took a closer look at 46-year-old Glenna, who had sustained a gunshot wound to the head, and realized she was still breathing. In the police report, he stated, I did not feel that she looked deceased and believed I could still see her breathing. I then attempted to check her pulse by checking her wrist. As soon as I touched her wrist, her eyes opened up and she started asking what I was doing and what was going on. Wilson immediately called for paramedics while trying to keep a confused and combative Glenna calm. He was unable to see how severe her injuries were because she was fighting with him and flailing around. As paramedics were moving Glenna from the house on a gurney to transport her to Spectrum Health Butterworth Hospital, she complained that someone was stepping on her hair, which, as we had said, Marty had a clump of hair in his hand. She continued to be combative in the ambulance and asked several times, why are you doing this, Marty, when she was being restrained? When asked who shot her, Glenna did not respond. I thought it was kind of odd that the um, neighbor didn't call 911 that she just went down to the firefighters. Didn't you think that was kind of strange? Yeah, I wondered about that too. I'm like, that would have been my first instinct, but you know, she may have been in shock. And when she left the residence, maybe she saw them down there and thought that it would be a much quicker solution than calling and waiting for 911. That's the only thing that I could think of. My other thing I thought was if that spaghetti and garlic toast had been left out, my dogs would have had that. That would not still be there when when people arrive to check out the yeah. scene. For sure. Mine too. Yeah. Anything. Marley, I found Marley on the counter before. So Yeah, that that food would not have been left there. So just to back up a little, the reason we touched on the timeline is because it was over an hour between the time first responders or the firefighters entered the home and when Sergeant Wilson discovered that Glenna was still alive. Now, Fire Chief Holt Zander had told the 911 dispatcher that he had confirmed the couple was deceased on arrival. However, a police report contradicts this, stating that Holt Zander reported no one checked to see if Martin or Glenna had a pulse, but that they appeared, in air quotes, to be dead. So the firefighters left the residence shortly after entering for their own safety. Also, the paramedics who were second to arrive on the scene entered the residence but did not check on the couple. Instead, they took Holt Zander's word that they were deceased. I'm sorry, isn't it, well, you're in the medical field, but isn't it like first responder one-on-one to actually feel for a pulse and confirm the victims are dead? Yeah, I would have thought that they would have confirmed that. I mean, in the hospital, before we pronounce death, we listen with the stethoscope for a heartbeat. We don't even feel the pulse because if your blood pressure is low, you may not feel a pulse. Well, I just thought it was very odd Not only that, but also after an hour with all of these people being in and out of the residence and all of this commotion going on, Glenna remained still or unconscious until somebody actually touched her. So I just thought that that was unusual as well. Uh, When reporters reached out to Holt Zander for comment, um, he didn't respond to them. At this point, police were not sure what had happened. Given the disarray of the home, which neighbor Connie Ream said was very unusual, They couldn't rule out the possibility that the Durhams were shot during a home invasion. 
although there didn't appear to be any signs of forced entry. We mentioned that Marty had three children from his previous marriage. The day after their father was killed, they went to the house to go through his things. But I was surprised when I read this. I was surprised about that, too. Well, I would have thought that it would have been taped off as a crime scene. Yeah. You know, it seems it seems like just that short a time, it still would have been a crime scene. And they could still would have been investigating, you know, what had happened. Anyway, they came across a manila envelope that police had missed during their search. And inside were three suicide letters one to each of Glenna's children and one for her ex-husband, in which she said she was sorry. According to one of the articles we read, one said, I'm sorry, but I love you and so sorry I've been a disappointment to you these last 12 years or so. Please forgive me. You're one of the best things I ever did. Love, Mom. Glenna said she regained her memory in the hospital. She told investigators, quote, I know for a fact I didn't kill my husband, unquote. Her last memory before the incident was three days before she and Marty were found. According to Glenna, she had texted her mom, love you, sorry, apologizing for canceling earlier plans and losing money at the casino. When reporters attempted to confirm this with Glenna, she did not respond. As with most active investigations, the police were tight-lipped, only stating that they were investigating Marty's death as a homicide and that the Ruger found in the home was believed to be the murder weapon. Two months after his murder, Marty's friends and family still had received little information, including whether there were any suspects. One of the Durham's neighbors hosted a vigil to honor Marty's memory. It was also an opportunity for the family and friends to express their frustration to the police. Marty's parents indicated that their son did not have any enemies or anyone who would want to kill him, but they were not getting answers from the police. His father, Charles Durham, stated that they just wanted justice for their son. He told a reporter, quote, I mean, we've been asking. We've had people by the house and everything else like that. We don't want to draw any funny conclusions or anything, but we want justice for Marty. And all we're getting is, we're working on it, we're working on it. Marty's mother, Lillian Durham, stated, when your son is murdered, you tend to want answers. So during their investigation, police conducted numerous interviews with those closest to the couple about their relationship in home life. When police interviewed Marty and Glenna's families, they learned that the couple had a tumultuous relationship and fought often mostly about money. Both had quick tempers and Glenna's children described Marty as being controlling and possessive. Friends and family said that though the couple argued often, they didn't see any indication that they were physical with each other. Jessica Durham, one of Marty's daughters, said that Glenna would often say she was, quote, just waiting for Marty to die to get all of his money. According to Jessica, Marty would just laugh and say, quote, yeah, you're not getting anything from me. She thought this was strange, but that it was a running joke of the couple's. Glenna's daughter confirmed the joking banter, stating that her mother and stepfather loved to talk shit. Marty's mother described the couple's arguments as, quote, fun type bickering. There seemed to be a consensus, though, that it didn't make sense for Marty and Glenna to be attacked by a random intruder. They always kept their doors locked, and Marty was especially leery of strangers. His son told police that Marty wouldn't open his door to a stranger unless he was armed. Glenna's son-in-law was asked by investigators whether the incident could be a botched murder-suicide, to which he stated, I don't buy it. 
They bicker, but I've never seen them get physical before. Neither Charles or Lillian Durham were in contact with Glenna after she and Marty were shot. Glenna had a wound behind her right ear, but those were the only details regarding your injuries that were released to the media. Glenna required months of rehabilitation to recover from her injuries. Although police initially investigated the incident from the perspective of the couple being shot by an outside assailant, Marty's parents believed the incident was the result of a domestic dispute and that their daughter-in-law was responsible. They continued to demand more information and results from the police. Information about the couple's home life slowly began to become public. It was reported by family members that Glenna had a gambling problem, and as a result, the couple was experiencing financial problems. Although family members said the couple were frugal with electric and heating, they spent a lot of money on their, quote, hobbies. 2010 documents showed that Glenna had gambled nearly $75,000 on slots in just one year. Wow. Yeah, that's like a whole salary. I know, right? Marty also gambled, but not to the extent of his wife. His children said that their father would only go because Glenna wanted him to. As we said earlier, Glenna was Marty's primary caregiver and in charge of the finances. According to Marty's children, the majority of the couple's income came from the money the state paid to Glenna for being Marty's caregiver, as well as Marty's Social Security. Marty's children also told investigators Glenna did not always pay the bills and would often hide financial difficulties from Marty. About a month before the incident, Marty learned from his mother that his house was listed in the paper as being up for auction due to foreclosure. He confronted Glenna, but she said it must be a misprint and that she would call the paper to straighten it out. However, among the items strewn across the living room floor when police executed the search warrant, were papers confirming the auction. One report said the family's estate attorney verified that due to payments not having been made in nearly a year, the house was due to be auctioned on May 13th, which was the day the Durhams were found shot in their home. According to a police report, investigators estimated that the incident occurred sometime between the evening of May 11th and the afternoon of May 13th. Several family members reported that Marty must have believed Glenna's claims that the house was not in foreclosure. According to his ex-wife, Christina Keller, Marty had done extensive work to the house over the past several months, including building a deck out back and an addition to the garage for a man cave, which he decorated with his mounts, which I'm guessing meant deer heads and such, as he was a hunter. She said, quote, just two days before he was killed, he was painting his bathroom ceiling. So nothing tells us that Marty knew his house was in foreclosure and everything points to her trying to keep this a secret. Marty's daughter, Jessica, said that along with the suicide notes found among her stepmother's belongings were ripped up foreclosure papers. She, like her grandparents, speculated that an argument about the couple's finances may have escalated, resulting in the shooting. Lily and Durham told reporters, We do a lot of assuming, we do a lot of guessing, and we really would like the story put together. A year after the incident, police still had not arrested a suspect. Glenna had recovered from her injuries, and the only interaction she had with Marty's family occurred during court hearings where they were battling over his will. Marty's family still suspected that Glenna had something to do with his death, and police were continuing to look at this angle, although they did not share this with the family. Then, a potential witness to the crime came forward. Well, sort of. We mentioned that Marty had been married to Christina Keller. What we didn't tell you was that, in addition to their children, 
They shared custody of a 19-year-old African gray parrot named Bud. By all accounts, Bud picked up everything he heard and was notorious for his foul mouth. And that is F-O-U-L, not F-O-W-L. He had a habit of spewing out expletives. You know, my kids were like that. If you let one of those slip, man, you were going to hear it because they were going to repeat that. And usually at the most inopportune times. Well, and I read some reports where they do compare parrots and their ability to mimic or pick up words to how children learn to speak. So I have to agree, you know, we had to be very careful around the children as well because that's how they learn. And I imagine that's how Bud learned as well. After Marty's death, Keller inherited Bud. A couple of weeks later, she noticed he kept repeating what seemed to be an argument between two people, even changing the tone of his voice. Keller told reporters, quote, after Marty's murder, my kids brought me the bird. He used to be mine, and I had another parrot here, so it made sense to give him to me. A few weeks after Bud being here, he started ranting in two voices I recognized. So I recorded him and realized what he was saying, and it upset me that he saw what happened to Marty and Glenna. Keller shared the video with her children and Marty's parents, who all felt that Bud was repeating what he saw the night of the shooting. According to reports, several attempts to get the police to listen to what Bud had to say were ignored. According to Keller, Bud said in Marty's voice, don't fucking shoot. She used her cell phone to make a video and we'll upload the video to our website gallery along with images of Marty and Glenna. After a year of frustration, Marty's family sent the video to a television station in hopes it would spur interest in action. It worked. News of the foul, foul quickly spread. And according to Keller, the prosecutor was pressured into making an arrest. Police arrested Glenna Durham, now 48, and charged her with one count of felony firearm and first-degree homicide for the 2015 murder of her husband. Michigan State Police and Nuego County Prosecutor Robert Springstead believed the incident was indeed a botched murder-suicide. Springstead told reporters that before the arrest, he was aware of the Durham parrot, but that Michigan State Police needed to conduct a thorough investigation. He told reporters, I'm sure the family has already made up their minds about what happened. I work on evidence and things I can prove, not gut feelings and hunches. Their gut feelings and hunches may end up being right, but I'm going to get all the information first. He also said that there was some evidence to support the possibility that Glenna had killed Marty. And although the law allows charging one probable cause, I don't like to do that, especially when you have a very serious case. Springstead stated that before going to trial, he wanted to ensure that there was proof beyond a reasonable doubt. So the question was, what role would or could Bud play in the trial? Although there was other evidence linking Glenna as the shooter, Springstead did look into whether Bud could be used for witness testimony. Family members truly believed that the bird had the events of the shooting imprinted in his memory and that he continued to relive the murder of his owner. Marty's mother told reporters, I personally think he was there and he remembers it and he was saying it. Christina Keller agrees, stating, quote, it terrified me. I hear screaming, yelling and fear. She said Bud often mimicked Marty and, quote, to listen to the whole two minute rant and to know Marty and to know Glenna and to know the things they would say to each other. It's haunting. I get chills when I hear it. Investigators did consider whether Bud could be a witness. 
Reporters talked to many parrot and legal experts for their views. One such expert was Doreen Plutkowski, owner of Casa La Parrot. What does that mean? Parrot House? A parrot house? Plutkowski said, after viewing the video of Bud, that she heard the parrot mimicking an argument between a man and a woman and that she could clearly hear Bud say, don't fucking shoot. Plutkowski stated, quote, in my mind, it's something that he's heard, definitely heard before. And if it's fresh in his mind, he might even say it more now. An attorney unrelated to the case told reporters that it is unlikely Bud could be a witness because there's no way to confirm where or how he learned the phrases he was repeating. He said, quote, how did it get there? If there's no reliable way of making that determination, you can't rule out that the bird witnessed a homicide or that the bird witnessed something on TV. So why do parrots mimic? It's because, like humans, they are very intelligent and social animals. In the wild, they use vocal and visual signals to communicate with their flock. A domesticated African gray would initiate the same behavior with its owner. They pick up on vocal cues and repeat them. But it often takes an extended period of repetition before a bird is able to learn words and phrases. Dr. Emery, a comparative psychologist that weighed in on the case, stated, I think it's very unlikely that the parrot is repeating its owner's last words. Parrots need to be presented with the same words over and over during specific training to learn those words and in the correct context. He also said that Bud was probably exposed to thousands of words during his lifetime, not only from the people around him, but also from television and radio, and that it's impossible for anyone to prove he was repeating Marty's last words. Although Emery didn't believe that Bud was capable of understanding that Marty was murdered, he did say that it was possible, given their close bond, that the parrot would have understood his owner was unresponsive to its calls. The fact that there was no way to prove Bud recalled the shooting was not the only issue when it came to whether he would make a viable witness. Another attorney interviewed by reporters said that is unlikely the parrot could be a witness in a criminal trial because witness testimony in court proceedings is governed by rules of evidence. Rule 601 of the Michigan Rules of Evidence states that, quote, unless the court finds after questioning a person that the person does not have sufficient physical or mental capacity or sense of obligation to testify truthfully and understandably, Every person is competent to be a witness except as otherwise provided in these rules. So according to this rule, the fact that Bud is not a person is just one issue. The other is that the witness must be able to testify truthfully and understandably. The prosecution continued to study Bud's words and look for other precedents that may indicate whether the bird's testimony would be admissible in court. Springstead told reporters, quote, It's an interesting novelty, and it's been a great opportunity for me to learn more about African parrots. Uh, Speaking of precedents, this isn't the first time testimony from a parrot has been considered. In 1993, a man was accused of murdering a business associate. The woman's parrot, Max, which was also an African gray, was present during the murder and began repeating the phrase, no, Richard, no, no, no. Well, the defense attorney wanted to use Max's testimony to prove his client, who was named Gary, was not the murderer. He stated, quote, I was making the argument that it wasn't hearsay, it was a recording device. The judge, however, did not allow Max's words to be used as testimony, and the defendant was convicted and is currently serving a life sentence. 
And that brings us back to Bud. In the end, the bird's words were not allowed. Glenna went on to trial, and on July 19, 2017, after eight hours of deliberation, a jury found her guilty of Marty's murder and sentenced her to life in prison. Christina Keller stated, We are happy Glenna is finally convicted. Sad it took two years to happen. And we give gratitude and thanks to the 12 fine people of Nuego that took the time and made the hard decision to convict Glenna. She also told reporters that, quote, we would just like to say we are glad that she will never get out of prison and we are hoping that our family is now able to move on. Glenna did appeal her conviction on the basis that investigators violated her rights when using data taken from her cell phone as evidence. The evidence used was browser history data showing websites related to Ruger guns, which was the type of weapon used to murder Glenna's husband, Marty. The defense tried to say that the evidence presented was hearsay and created prejudice. However, a judge dismissed the argument and upheld Glenna's conviction. Some additional notes. In addition to the twist of Bud being considered a witness, there were other oddities related to the case. A relative who claimed to be a psychic told investigators where they would find the weapon. Also, disputes between Marty and Glenna's relatives relating to the crime and Marty's estate led to death threats being made between the two families. Although Glenna denied that she had written the suicide letter, a handwriting analysis confirmed that she did. And while researching this case, we found an article posted to Oxygen's website that discusses several pets that helped investigators solve crimes. We will post that link to our Facebook account, so to be sure to check that out. I thought another interesting thing that we didn't mention earlier was that though both bodies were found in the bedroom, the weapon was actually found in a sofa in the living room. Yeah, it was found underneath the, um, well, they said chair, but in a later report, I read that it was like a love seat that the Ruger handgun was found underneath a love seat. And so, yeah, I did think that was weird because she would have had to have shot him, shot herself, left the gun underneath the sofa and then staged herself in the bedroom under the blanket. Some reports said that her injury was severe and it took her several months of recuperation. But then another report I read said it was superficial. So I'm not, I'm, I wasn't really clear on what the extent of her injuries were. And there wasn't a lot of information out there that gave a clear description of what her injuries were. I would have think that it would have to have been not too severe. There's no other way I can see that the gun ended up, if she was the, the one who did this, that the gun ended up in a separate room than her. You know, yeah. Also, I can just see if they had put the parrot on the witness stand. I mean, would they had him put his front claw, his back claw? I mean, what would he used on the Bible to um, swear to tell the truth, the whole truth? That that would have been interesting. And how do you cross-examine a parrot? You know, well, and he probably would have just kept repeating, "Don't fucking shoot, don't fucking shoot." So, <laughs> or he could start mimicking what the um, prosecutor is. Asking him, he could also just mimic that back or repeat that back. It would have been, I think it just would have been hysterical. Objection, objection. (laughs) Order in the court, order in the court. (laughs) We could go on and on and on with this, but we'll spare our listeners. So we are glad that you joined us. We're looking forward to our next episode. We're going to start putting them out every week. Can't believe it's already November. A little freaked out about that. So until then. 
Make good choices. Keep your head on a swivel. And stay safe. Bye. Bye. Thank you for joining us for this episode of True Crime on Our Minds. Check out our Facebook page and website at truecriminds.com where you can see photos and other information related to episodes and submit recommendations on other crimes. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts and provide us with a rating. You can also find us on Patreon and sign up to get extra content and support the show.